Did the research of this episode also make you feel very much like a middle-aged man being excited about vacuum cleaners? <laughs> That's how I felt. To I got felt super excited. Like everything is um, dirty and my ear is polluted and everything <laughs> is full of germs and I need to get rid of this. I need to do something about it. <laughs> it does make you feel like, oh God, am I not on top of the cleanliness as much as I could be? Do I need a laser showing me how just how dirty my flat is? But um, oh, that, that, the feeling passed pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then it was just me. Yeah, I got super into it. Uh, did you discover this YouTube channel called Vacuum Wars? Oh, God, no, I didn't. Thankfully, that sounds like that could have been a bit oh, of a time Super interesting rabbit hole. So there is this YouTube channel, obviously Vacuum Wars. It's all about comparing different vacuum cleaners on performance, specs, battery life. It's amazing how much in detail people go with this stuff. And it has like hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And I have to admit, like it was kind of fun going through that. <laughs> mm. i tell you what's wild, vacuum cleaner Reddit. There are some tribal conversations going on oh, yeah. there. <laughs> so, I discovered that. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Might touch on that a little later, but uh, yeah, some uh, pretty spicy takes on, on the brand that we're going to talk about today, actually. Mm. So what's the brand we're going to talk about today, Tom? So yeah, this is a company, um, personally, I've been dying for us to talk about for a while. Um, I feel like having gone even deeper than ever into this brand, we could do a series <laughs> about this one. There's so much interesting stuff in there, particularly from an engineering and design perspective. Um, and they, they started off uh, tackling one of the most unglamorous tasks in our daily lives, um, something many of us try to avoid, not Alan by the sound of uh, things, which is, which is vacuuming. Um, but then they sort of turned this into an art form. And not just vacuums, they've reimagined fans, hair dryers, um, hand dryers, famously. So, yeah, they're famous for innovation and for price. Their products are bloody expensive, which is one of the things that people on Reddit aren't too uh, wild about. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't guessed, today we are tearing down Dyson. Um, this is a brand that's turned the sort of household appliance game on its head, really, over the last couple of decades. Um company i'd say synonymous with innovation design um sort of making you look at household chores a little differently which obviously alan <laughs> increasingly is off the back of this research <laughs> i think dyson they've got this knack for sort of taking the mundane cleaning the crap off your floor getting water off your hands and infusing it with sort of incredible engineering and i would say sort of unexpected design not necessarily slick uh, design uh, that feels like it's from the future. When you first encounter some of Dyson's products in these quite mundane scenarios, they do take you by surprise, uh, and we're going to get we're going to get into some of that kind of design signature of theirs a little later. And when you think of Dyson, I think it's hard not to think of the person behind the brand as well, uh, the right. person who it's named after. Right? The, How it much feels does... like for the first time we're actually doing. The research almost felt like I'm researching a person rather than a company. That was so weird for me when I did this. So before it was always like, okay, Oatly, Muji, all of them or few of them. Let's think about WeWork. Many of mm -hmm. them have a, let's say, charismatic founder. But for no company, it felt like on the level of James Dyson. Not actually f like researching a company, but really 
researching a person. A person. And yeah, if you actually visit their website, so much of it is written from the first person perspective of like James writing it. And that I found super interesting. I mean, especially the history section is like, I did this, uh, la, la, la. you know, it's like, like James writing uh, the, the, the story. So that felt very interesting and just different from the way usually companies communicate, which is we like, or even companies like without these sides, right? Yeah. So usually you could have like smaller companies that communicate a lot through first person, uh, but companies of this magnitude, that's more a we usually. And also founders try to step back and not be as much in the center anymore. Uh, but that doesn't seem like, <laughs> like the case for James. No, <laughs> no. but he is so well-spoken. I don't know how you perceive it, Tom, but like as a, a you know, like an outsider looking towards the Britain, like he is just, yeah, he has all the, the usual stereotypical manners, well-spoken, polite, but also witty, uh, intelligent. I just found him, whenever I listen to, I don't know, episode, uh, podcast episode with him or interview, there's always like really clear and interesting communication and he makes everything just sound almost poetic. He's very easy to listen to, very eloquent. Um, I, I made I, when we were researching this. I kind of made the joke uh, on our Slack that he sounds like someone doing an impression of an English person. <laughs> it's 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 um, yeah, no, very articulate. Um, for I, I I've got a very a kind of uh, East London working class accent. His is very different to mine. I wish I spoke as eloquently as he does. Um, but yeah. Uh, fascinating guy to listen to. They, we, we've all been consuming interviews with him and stuff, and I'd recommend uh, checking a few of those out if, if we pique your interest today. He's a really interesting chap. And like you say, completely synonymous with the brand. He's very much at the forefront of their marketing. Um, and yeah, you think of James Dyson, Sir James, I should, uh, you know, show some oh, respect. <laughs> 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 so yeah i mean the guy's a design and engineering icon um particularly in the uk i don't think i appreciated really um how much he's admired globally as well um that 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 took me by surprise but um even if his reputation has taken a few knocks in recent years particularly uh in the uk i promise not to get into the brexit talk but definitely his views on that um lost him a few fans um but i think still got an enormous amount of knowledge um interesting story background ethos that is absolutely worth listening to uh, and learning about i think the thing that i found particularly fascinating about james dyson sir james uh, is that a lot of the choices he made and the advice he dispenses sort of flies in the face of what a lot of what we're taught in design and business if we want to create something that gets to the scale don't take advice. this company has sorry go on france don't take advice yeah well that's one of his things right he's like don't <laughs> take advice like trust your instincts and stuff it's like dude yeah um like fair take my advice <laughs> take my advice for not taking the advice <laughs> so yeah pretty yeah pretty pretty bold on on that front um but yeah, we'll touch on these a, a little later, but this is a founder who has relied largely on instinct. Um, not a fan of experts, not a fan of market research, 
uh, and he's kept Dyson in private ownership as well from inception. And again, that kind of flies in the face of what we feel to get to like big scale. You know, you you take VC money, private equity, but he's avoided all those trappings and still created something enormous. Um, so yeah, fascinating. Um, even more fascinating as a designer is this close bond that he's formed in Dyson between design and engineering, which I have to be honest, I'd not appreciated quite so much before researching this episode. Um, I love this quote from him. He says, well, he's got lots of quotes about engineering, um, but the art and engineering are both creative acts. And I just think that is, that is wonderful, really sums up their ethos. And as a designer who like really, really enjoys working super closely with developers, I completely concur. Some of the best kind of design work and iteration and experimentation I've done as a designer has been working with engineers. Um, so yeah, really, really uh, can get on board with trying to bring those worlds closer together. But anyway, let's let's start with a question. <clears throat> what was the first Dyson product you remember noticing, and why did it catch your eye? Because this is a brand that emerged in the early to mid 90s so we were all still kids at that age that stage um was dyson on your radar from early early age or was it later that you started noticing their stuff for me okay. it's super easy Go ahead. i did not i think i knew that dyson vacuum cleaners exist but my first real relation with dyson came with their air blades and mm. i hate this product Ah, I deeply hate the air blade that you have to put your hands in and it blow dries your, your hands. Why do you I hate it, Franz? Because I, I want to get into the air filth. blade. It's filth. filth. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, yes, I get it. It's more sustainable. You don't have to use paper towels. I get it. I, it's all good, but it just feels filthy to stick my hands into something that has super high air pressure. It feels like everything spilled on me it feels like i touch this thing and i touch like germs it's like i don't like it i i hate so, so, blow dryers so i agree i also don't like it but just to clarify you don't like when your hands touch accidentally the the machine or do you feel the air that it's also you know the air that it's pushing out it's filthy um not or so both. much the air that so now there are two ear blades, right? The one that you stick your fingers in and the one that you hold your hands below. Yes. So yeah. first one, if you stick your fingers in, that's just too narrow. You will always either fear <laughs> to touch it or actually touch it. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like playing, yeah. Yeah, this uh, doctor's game, right? This, yeah, this yeah, children's yeah. game where you need to put mm. organs out of a box. Operation. And are not, operation, exactly. And you're not allowed to... Um, touch the borders of that so that's how it feels like putting my hands into an air blade of the old generation and now there's the new generation where you put just put your hands below and then it feels like i'm just this thing is just blowing germs on myself because mm. i put my hands there and then the whole air blows down on my trousers and everything from not only me but everybody who has ever used this fan <laughs> actually is now spread over my trousers well, I yeah, I just don't like it. I just I, don't I, like I, using it. I, I, I'm sort of with you on this. I, I looked up because I was like, where does the water go? I thought there, there must be, it must be going somewhere, the stuff that is um, like pulled off of your hands by this. 
it just goes on the floor. That's the design. Um, it's because, you know, in washrooms, they're going to clean up the floor at some point. Some of it will evaporate, but it literally goes on the floor. And um, there, I, I sent you both this little uh, cartoon uh, illustration, which is from a sort of comedy thing in the UK called Modern Toss. And they describe the uh, where all the water collects in the bottom of an air blade as Attenborough's Trench after David Attenborough, the <laughs> kind of... Um, wildlife guy in that there's so much yeah. dna and germs and stuff living at the bottom of the air blade so i'm, I'm sort of with you when you touch the edge side of the air blade when you're using it you do want to go and wash your hands again but anyway i th we're going to touch on the air blade more a little later um yeah. but it's good to good to know you're a big fan um alan <laughs> what about you what was your first experience with with dyson so i think dyson didn't come to our market um for a pretty long time, you know, so I was not exposed to it at all in the 90s or even the beginning of 2000s. I became aware of it when I kind of got to the vacuum cleaner age. Okay. <laughs> I'm using air quotes. <laughs> so vacuum cleaner age being, I don't know, like you moving to, uh, to your own, 18, 19, 20, then like you buy the first crappy vacuum cleaner, it doesn't work, you need to have the cord. And I just hate these things. So I like my my sister's um, husband. He was into Dyson and into um, into vacuum cleaners. So he did the first demonstration of how it works. Uh, it so, sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember it vividly because it felt like I'm in one of those. You know, like when you go into a shopping mall and there is like uh, I don't know some kind of a demonstration and there is a person who throws floor. Uh, like um, flower on the uh, floor, yeah. and mm -hmm. then they just run the Dyson over it. That's exactly what he's done to show. Really? <laughs> so he Wild. took flower and threw it on the threw it on the floor and showed how it works. And uh, I'm not gonna lie, I'm, I was impressed. Yeah. So it worked on me. So at that point, I decided that one day uh, I'm gonna buy it if I can, because yeah, it's not cheap at all. Um, so when I decided to pull the trigger, trigger was like four years ago. And I still went like for a mid-level uh, product, so it's uh, V8. Oh, he's always got it I... right there. I used to have a V8 until it broke, which is another story. Yeah, that's where I think we're headed as well. Uh, <laughs> so it's being heavily used, uh, and there's this like um, I think plastic is not of the best material, like of the mm. best quality. Mm -mm. Um, but I, I'm now going too much into uh, the details, but I'm still like impressed with the build and just last thing on the on the personal stories is when we bought it like i was super i would say proud you know in a way like oh we got this amazing vacuum cleaner and then i would show it to my parents and they were like they would scoff at it like ah, what's this plastic crap it feels uh you know it's not sturdy enough mm -hmm. they're used to those big heavy machines and uh Basically, just a week ago, they wanted to buy a new one, and they were like, "Oh, I don't want that uh, cheap Dyson thing." And I, it, it kind of yeah, it hurt me. Like, oh. you know, this is kind of supposed to be top of the line, yeah. <laughs> top of the line product. So I had to educate them and so on. Uh, so it's just funny to see how, without the context of the price and uh, just the design itself, which you uh, brought up before, it doesn't look premium. No. It doesn't. Um, the engineering is definitely premium, whether it's engineering over-engineered. Question we'll uh, explore a little later. Um, but yeah, I've, I've also had one of these these vacuums. I don't anymore. Uh, to your point about the plastics, very brittle, 
fell, broke the top bit, never performed the same again, and the battery life got really uh, not 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 terribly good. So yeah, um, yeah, I've I've moved from being a big <laughs> fan of the vacuum cleaner to not so much, and uh, I'm not alone. <laughs> According to Reddit, but uh, anyway, for for me, the first products that um, I noticed was the vacuum cleaner. Um, yeah, you know, based in the UK, first market that they really exploded in. Um, I'm a, a few years older than both of you, I think, so it kind of you know I was definitely very conscious uh, of it on television and stuff. Um, and it was the adverts that really I noticed first. They were like a sort of quick science lesson in how a bagged Hoover works and the difference. And to sort of slightly inquisitive Tom of like 10, 12 years old, I found that really interesting and it was very different advertising. Um, and also the the visual design of the visual design, the product design um, kind of looked a bit like a toy as well. Um, so yeah, it really kind of stood out to me and it was making a lot of waves, uh, I guess, in in the news and things like that so so that was product, that uh one yes yeah oh, okay yeah, yeah the yeah. yellow yeah. the yellow one with the you know the the transparent um uh design which obviously yeah. is the thing um for dyson when it comes to vacuums so yeah that product the dyson bagless vacuum really was where it all started right for dyson mm. and it remains the product i think that people typically think of when they hear the name dyson maybe the air blade a close second but for most people i think it's the vacuum um so let's dive into the origin story of that product um really that started it all but we're gonna we're gonna rewind a bit first um i want you to picture a, a very young james dyson he's not a sir yet um a student in the 60s at the royal college of arts in the uk and he's studying furniture design and architecture um he'd thought about going into other areas and kind of got career advice from a whole bunch of people and they kept telling him to go and study art so he was like well they must know something i don't i'm going to go into to the arts kind of slowly moved his way towards more towards formal design and he does end up kind of moving a bit more into the industrial design side of things part way through his career and while dyson was still studying um it was pretty talented prolific designer won't, won't surprise anyone um and he designs this sort of mushroom shaped theater um which was quite an unusual design used this kind of space frame um construction technique and it was for a famous theater director called joan littlewood uh and the sort of idea to design this theater had come out of a conversation he'd overheard of her um saying that she wanted to build this new theater in stratford east um so he was like well i'm gonna have a crack at it and the design kind of stood up it was well received um and typical for dyson he was like this is quite innovative i want to get it built <laughs> and the, the design was typically dyson it was a little unorthodox it was approached in this slightly unconventional way with the sort of striking geometric dome and yeah like I say he, he really wanted to to bring it to life to bring it into the world so he approached um you know, a reasonably famous engineer a chap called jeremy fry who's at a company called um, rotalk um, based in the sort of west of England, to ask if he would help fund the construction. He thought it would be in his wheelhouse. Um, he had a kind of relationship with him. But um, Jeremy was like, 
absolutely not. <laughs> not not going to give you the money for the theatre. Um, but instead, weirdly, this is like such a strange kind of move in this whole story. Uh, he commissioned a very young Dyson, who was still a student, to help him with design at his company. This was like a 20-year-old guy still learning the ropes. So it was quite an unexpected offer, um, especially since he was so inexperienced. Um, and I think this leap of faith really stuck with Dyson. And he's sort of taken this approach into his own hiring practice. I don't know if you saw this, but Dyson yeah. take on a lot of graduates, lots of learning on the job at Dyson, making mistakes, asking naive questions. Did you, did you sort of pick up on that in your own research? I saw some job posts that stated you can have a maximum of two years of experience. Wow. Maximum. Because <laughs> yeah. he was like, as soon as you know too much, you don't explore problems with a new angle, with a fresh, fresh, fresh kind of mindset, right? That was crazy for me to read. I mean, usually it's the other way around. Like mm. you have a job that says, hey, you need to have studied this and you need to have this much of experience. But this is more like, no, you need a, you can have a maximum of two years of experience. Otherwise, not interesting for us anymore. Yeah. It was, uh, it was quite, I, I really like that approach and they've, they've built out a kind of um, graduate scheme now um, we might talk about a little later. But yeah, I really admire that kind of faith that, that um, Fry put in Dyson and Dyson now puts in his teams. So yeah. Mm. So anyway, James Dyson, he ended up working with Fry on several projects. Um, probably one of the more high pro profile was this high-speed landing craft that Fry had invented, but he needed someone to design Uh, an engineer a prototype um, so that was kind of some the first big project that Dyson got involved in that would go on to be a commercial success and kind of gave him his first foray into the business side um, of designing and launching a product but again he was designing a boat he had zero experience in it but you know he was very adaptable and had a boss who put enormous trust in his abilities and uh, yeah I think he's carried a lot of that ethos through so he'd eventually, after graduating, end up joining that company, helped sell the boat that he'd helped design and learned a lot of lessons about sales, licensing and demand, which we are definitely going to talk about when it comes to the uh, vacuum cleaner a little later. But all this early work combined this interest in design with practical engineering. He was from a design background, got this close relationship with an engineer and really started to see the power of combining those Um so yeah, post that work on the on the landing boat, his first sort of notable solo invention um, was something called the ball barrow uh, in 1974. Have either of you seen this? You must have come across it in yes, your research. Yeah, what and you I'm looking forward to you try to explain what it is because it's so hard to describe in words. I had to really just look it up. Uh, I think it looks funny, mm. um, and I understand why it wasn't a commercial success, <laughs> but. Um, I also see why it kind of did work functionally. Mm. It was it was everywhere when I was a kid. So do you can count it really? before Franz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, I mean it was massive. It was a, it ended up taking 50% of the market, but it okay, was just not, it was not commercially it successful. <laughs> yeah. It was not commercially successful. Um so, so yeah, didn't didn't make it to Austria and Slovenia then. No. Oh. You're missing out. Um, Clearly, yeah. <laughs> no, it but, look, I mean, when you see it, it looks like a toy almost. It does look like a toy. Exactly. That's where I was going to go next because I remember from my childhood, it had this. So if you imagine a, a normal wheelbarrow, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are, are familiar with a wheelbarrow. Um, but instead of the, the sort of narrow tire wheel at the front, 
like a conventional wheel that you might see on a small car or a car or something. It had a giant orange plastic ball. It's like um, a basketball. Like a big basketball or something. Um, and this was a really innovative take on the traditional wheelbarrow. Um, it sort of replaced the wheel with this ball that would make it more stable and easy to manoeuvre. Um, and this was really so Dyson-esque, right? Like he was renovating his house, using a lot of wheelbarrows and getting stuck in the mud, concrete getting stuck to them. The kids would injure themselves on them. He was seeing a problem. He was like, there's got to be a better way. Um but yeah, sadly, it was never profitable, um, even though it took up like 50% of the market at one point. Um, he says now they just didn't charge enough um, and did have a major setback when his own sales manager in the company took the idea and sold it to a competitor. Um, and I think this experience with the ball barrow was one of Dyson's first lessons in the importance he personally places on um, patent protection. Um, it's definitely one that's influenced his later business strategies, including uh, the vacuum cleaner. Um, so yeah. yeah, going back to um, to the vacuum cleaner, that's like I said, definitely the product that Dyson's most uh, famous for, or floor care, uh, as they call it now, because there's so many products in that category. So um, we've looked a bit about the origin story of James Dyson. Let's let's talk about the origin story of this product. So. I think the tale of this vacuum cleaner, the first Dyson vacuum cleaner, is an absolute tale in persistence. Um, the man and his wife, in particular, most have the patience of a saint. Um, yeah, she deserves an award as well. <laughs> she, she is Dame Deirdre um, Dyson now, so um, yeah, she 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 got 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 what she deserved. But um, so yeah, back in the seventies, James Dyson and his wife Deirdre had bought their first home um, and with it, you make an essential purchase. You already talked about this earlier, Alan. You know, you get to a certain age where you've moved out of home. You've got to clean the crap off your floor, especially when you've got a few kids like James Dyson did. So he went and bought what he was marketed as being the most powerful vacuum cleaner on the market, right? And it was traditional upright machine with a big bag, sucks up the rubbish, puts it in the bag. We'll get into why that's not so efficient. Um, and whenever he would use it for a while, it would start to lose suction. So he'd be hoovering away, but the dust wasn't coming up as effectively as before. And this was a period when all vacuum cleaners came with a bag which collected all of that stuff that had been sucked up by the cleaner. And then one day, he the bag uh, on the machine that he was using got so full, um, but he didn't have a replacement bag. So he took it out into the garden, shook it out, completely cleared it out put the bag back on the machine and expected that since it was empty, it would have full suction again. No, not at all. Put it on, he's like, why isn't this working? I don't understand. So typical Dyson engineering, <laughs> takes it all apart. Straight into workshop. Straight into the workshop. Um, <laughs> Sorry, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy's going to be gone for five years. <laughs> I can join. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it starts pulling the bag apart. And realize that how the design works is that the air is pulled through uh, up from the base of the cleaner through the bag. And then the bag has all these tiny little pores at the edges that um, allow the air to escape once it's pulled the dirt through. And the problem is that those pores um, get completely full with fine pieces of dust and are far less effective. The airflow can't come through, the dirt 
particles are so small that you can't clean them out. So what do you do? You go and buy a new bag. Exactly. A very wasteful part of the product experience, but all together just part of the design as it was for, you know, what, 80, 90 years, something like that. Um, and a big and, part of business for uh, these companies. 500 right? million pound a year business. Exactly. Um, I mean, if you think about it, it's like you're not just selling a vacuum cleaner, but you also can sell. It's an up. It's not an upsell, but it's like a continuous, almost like a subscription to buying the bags. So obviously, it was a great business model for for the vacuum cleaning. Well, for the companies creating vacuum cleaners. Absolutely, it was classic razor and blade model. All right, with with the companies that that sold the razor, the Hoover, the vacuum cleaner just want to keep selling you blades bags right with very little incentive for change so um yeah we're going to talk a bit about <laughs> that, that a little bit later so but like any visionary he sees it's not just a problem but a challenge and this is where the dyson journey <laughs> where he spends most of the next few years in his shed begins because he thought there must be a better way um and it wasn't until He's kind of had that encounter with the Hoover. I keep using Hoover. It's just so synonymous, isn't it, with vacuum cleaners, that word. In yeah. the UK. Yeah. In the UK, definitely. Sorry if I keep using it interchangeably. Yeah, the US, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So he spotted this problem with the, the vacuum. Um, but it wasn't really until he started working on the ball barrow that he saw a better way that the vacuum cleaner could work. So part of the... Um, construction process for the ball barrow was powder coating the barrow's frames in a workshop and there'd be dust and powder flying everywhere causing a mess in the factory and they had to clean it all up by hand not a very pleasant job not a very pleasant place to be working so he spoke to someone who worked in a sawmill being like how do you deal with this problem because there's dust everywhere in a sawmill um, and the way that they managed it in sawmills was with a giant cyclone so this was like a 30 foot tall sort of cone shaped thing running above the factory floor you'd kind of see it poking out the top of a of the building where the sawmill is and i am not an expert in cyclone uh, dynamics so i'm not going to try and explain it in detail but basically that you turn the cyclone uh, on uh, and it kind of uh, high velocity sucks sawdust up into this cone with this giant cyclone effect, which is kind of swirling the air around and pushing the dust to the sides and pulling it up. The air kind of escapes and you've separated the air and the dust by pulling it up. And it leaves this kind of clean space below and captures all of the sawdust above. That is some basic stuff. If you really want to find out more, Google, you know, cyclone uh, physics. Um, so yeah, he was like, hmm going to get this into the workshop but also thought this could be the answer to the vacuum cleaner issue so he decided to go home and use an approach that dyson use all the time now which was build a cardboard prototype obviously much much smaller not 30 feet more like you know 30 inches 30 centimeters which he attached to this crappy old um vacuum cleaner with the bag and it worked didn't work amazingly but it worked and he knew he was on something. He thought this could become the next big, big, next big thing. He really, truly felt like he'd landed on something important, not just from an engineering perspective, but from a waste perspective, right? You know, all these bags that people are going through, that's something you drive out. Um, 
but he also knew it wasn't going to take a lot of time. It was going to take a lot of time and a fair bit of funding, um, which he definitely, uh, sadly, didn't have. <laughs> um, so who should he end up going back to? But our friend, uh, Mr. Fry, the engineer who'd uh, put all that trust in him um, all those years ago. So, uh, yeah, went back to Stephen Fry. As Stephen Fry, <laughs> Stephen Fry wasn't involved in this story. Jeremy Fry, um, and unlike the theatre, which he'd rejected all those years ago, he was like, "You are definitely on something here." So, Jeremy Fry put in, I think, forty nine percent of the funding to get things off the ground, uh, and Dyson funded the other fifty one percent. That gave them, I think, like sixty thousand pounds, something like that, to get things moving. Um, and you would think this was one of the best investments ever in the business world, but there's uh, another part of this story. Yeah. There is a twist in the tale. Um, but yeah, with the help of Fry's funding, Dyson, Dyson begins this sort of five-year odyssey uh, of innovation tucked away in that backyard shed. Um, and it's here that the Dyson cyclonic technology is born, right? After an incredible 5,000 failed prototypes and an awful lot of debt <laughs> um yeah and each time iterating a little bit to learn what difference that had made five thousand prototypes so after years and years of hard work and persistence he manages to finally create the final version first version of that bagless vacuum cleaner that can be mass produced with this very unique transparent design that the brand is now famous for so we're going to get into the twists and turns um, of Dyson bringing that first production-ready vacuum to market with all its unique marketing and design features um, in a bit. But uh, it's it's this sort of design and functionality interplay that has been so key for Dyson um, over the years. It's the design approach that's one of the reasons I think they're so interesting for designers. So before we get into the story of how Dyson's first vacuum cleaner sort of came to market, I do want to go a little deeper, um, just briefly into the design ethos of the company. Because um, I think there are things in there that make them a fascinating business for designers to dive into. Um, Alan, you mentioned though the investment piece. I don't know. Are you going to touch on that, Franz? Otherwise, we should definitely. Um, <laughs> talk no, a little I think bit I'm going to bring it up later. What yeah. happened with Fry's investment? Yeah, yeah. Because um, fair play, I think they parted on very good terms, but um, yeah, missed out on a bit of bag there. Um, so yeah, for me as okay. a designer, there's 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 a few few areas I think are super fascinating about Dyson. First of those is this completely problem-solving design um, approach. Dyson always starts with a problem that consumers actually face rather than kind of making incremental improvements to something that's already out there. Um, and it's this kind of start again, completely fresh thinking um, sort of first principles approach that ensures that the design that comes out the other end has a really clear purpose and addresses some real frustrations. So it's like, okay, this product's been around for a long time, but it's far from perfect. You know, what if we approached it completely differently with design and engineering? So I think that that kind of bravery and that kind of there, there must be a better way just because it's been done the same way for a hundred years doesn't mean that's right is, is uh, very inspiring. 
uh, and as a designer who likes to unpick problems uh, and has ambitions to work on, you know, very big problems in the world, I think Dyson gives us a little window into into what that bravery can result in. It's very inspiring. I mean, the whole story and the, just the bravery they have going into so many different product categories. It is, I mean, I was definitely inspired doing the research for this one. Same. Absolutely. It's made me rethink um, my life. My life. <laughs> my, my, my cleanliness. My household appliances. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that really gave me encouragement is, and so my second second thing that I really admire from a design perspective is the engineering-driven side of it, the sort of engineering-driven innovation. Um, a lot of companies treat design and engineering as very separate processes, right? And they might hide away some really interesting engineering behind a really simple facade but dyson integrates design and engineering really interestingly from a product perspective what you see at the end but also from a process perspective so engineers are encouraged to be designers and vice versa they sort of blur the lines between the roles but also between form and function i think this leads to products that aren't just aesthetically quite pleasing but are technically superior because you're not trying to um make some engineering fit a very like minimal design it's like well if that's how it's got to be shaped or how the parts have got to be placed in order for this to be a superior product fine we'll lean into that and that'll be part of our aesthetic um so yeah find that really interesting i think dyson products really show out for for kind of exposing their 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 parts which um uh, as it were um which i'll um touch on a little bit more um in another one of the points that i think is really interesting the next one is this approach of prototyping and iteration. Um, Dyson's design process involves extensive prototyping. You know, over 5,000 prototypes to get that first vacuum cleaner out there is wild. Um, and this commitment to iteration allows the company to sort of refine and perfect its products in a way that very few others do. Um, and they are very open to failure. They, they they think that their engineers and designers should be shipping all the time new ideas, new versions. Very happy to commit the resources and the money that goes into that as well. Yeah, I read somewhere that it took them between almost like 15 years to... So it took them five years, or you said 5,000 prototypes. Mm. I don't know how many years was that, but it was a few years mm. to get to the DC01, so the first vacuum cleaner but it took them almost 15 years to get to the um, the robot cleaner yes so imagine a company a public company being willing to take this long to actually develop a product it really feels to me like you really need to be a company with different type of mentality and philosophy and frankly probably even a private company which Dyson is uh, to be able to sustain on a single product uh, for such a long time without getting any revenue in return. Absolutely. Um, and I think this is going to play out in the story when we get into more detail so much, how it frees them up to, to, be, to be like that. Um, reason number four is um, real focus on commercial acumen in the design and engineering teams. James Dyson, whether you agree with this or not, he understood and appreciated for him the importance of protecting his innovations through patents. Some people out there that are really anti-patent, 
James Dyson isn't. He's very pro it. But he saw that this ensures his company can maintain competitive advantage in the market, right? Um, and he wasn't afraid to kind of take those risks, um, like bypassing different channels and doing D2C like very early because he understood the potential of doing that. Um, and the thing that I found really interesting is if you look at the Dyson design process, um, it uses a methodology which I hadn't heard of before called Access FM. Have you heard of this? No, really interesting. It's not a Dyson invention. Um, I will try and um, look up who it was, but it's a kind of engineering design process that has become um, adopted by a number of companies. Uh, and the, I'm going to quickly run through it's a sort of acronym. So it's aesthetics, cost, customer, environment, safety, size, function, and materials. And the interesting thing for me is that um, cost and customer are so central to that so i looked through some of the training materials that dyson have for the students that come and be part of their academy and the second thing they do is looking at market sizing and customer need uh, and uh, viability it is so baked into their process um, that I, I thought was fantastic and obviously as someone um Who's, who's done the D, DMBA and it's part of what we do now. Um, you know, that has now become part of my process and I find it extremely valuable. And it was really interesting to me that that is so central, making sure their engineers um, who are coming up with new ideas and new inventions understand that understanding the viability and the cost structure and the market size is, is absolutely uh, one of the, the high priority items. And if, a few few more things. Um, the educational marketing for me as well is is an interesting thing from a design perspective. Very different to how uh, vacuums were marketed in the past. Um, if you, I implore you to look up the original advert for the vacuum, which kind of showed the science behind why bags were shit. <laughs> um, but they continue to do this. Talk a lot about educating the customer on why their technology is superior, rather than just relying on highfalutin or just um, showing the the design and going, oh, this is desirable because it looks great. It's desirable because there's some really interesting en engineering in there. So a lot of the way they market is in this kind of educational way. Um, almost all of their website is like this, right? Yeah. If you look at their website and their product pages, it's all about how this works. Mm. And a lot of the um, training and experience that I had, for example, working with I, I worked for a long time with Adidas, for example, like in sporting goods. And Adidas had also a tradition of being very feature-driven. So there was a time when I worked there where the whole company tried to shift their marketing and storytelling from, hey, this is the feature of this product and this is what it does to, hey, this is the story behind this. This is what it what it kind of makes you become when you have this product. Um, and that's basically where most of the market shifted, right? So you you don't talk about features. Nobody cares about features. That's what people are. That's what many people tell you when you talk about marketing. But here it's really a lot about features, and but still about value. I'm not saying that they only talk about features, but uh, still about value. But the whole thing feels like education. The whole website feels like education. Mm. But it goes along with their design because if we look at this thing, so it's not, it wasn't designed to be just like minimalist and beautiful. It is designed to look 
out of this world in a way, you know, futuristic. And I think it goes together with like this kind of marketing, which is this is technologically more advanced than other stuff on the market. And that's what we're selling. It is this idea of we are feature-wise so much ahead of everyone else that we can afford to do this kind of marketing. Uh, because as you said, Franz, most of the other companies went into like either they're selling a status symbol, you know, that's why you see certain vacuum cleaners and other household appliances just having a very slick, minimal black and white design because like it's more about me owning this thing than about what this thing does. And Dyson is completely like it's different, you know. Like, uh, by owning it, I'm telling the story that I know what I'm buying and I'm like more educated buyer mm. and I know that Vacuum Wars YouTube channel would approve of my purchase. <laughs> so what you care about is those, those, yeah. those guys. Just just want to get the nod from them. It's a really good segue to my next next uh, reason I think the designers should find Dyson quite interesting is that the aesthetics really reflect function, which is quite unusual these days. Like you said, Alan, very often we're trying to hide away the engineering in these slick packages. Um, Dyson products are designed often with this sort of transparent cutaway showing all the inner workings, um, showing the kind of valve shapes and things like that. And there's this honesty in the design that has this sort of very unique visual appeal, weirdly appealing actually, but also yeah. does, like you said, communicate that these products have a sort of technical prowess that other products don't and really leaning into that. Um, the, the original, well, I think the Hoovers are like reminiscent of like the Pompidou Centre in Paris, which is this art museum where all of the sort of ducting and all of the um, uh, air conditioning and everything is kind of a feature on the outside of the building. Um, it really kind of looks a, a bit a bit like that, it's sort of leaning into the engineering and making it something um, desirable. And I think that is like quite unusual. Um, they they sort of tone it down a bit for certain products like the hair dryers, but there's still mm. something very Dyson uh, about about all of these products. Yeah, couple more things. One is sustainable design, um, which I think is a controversial one when it comes to Dyson. To be honest with you, um, they say at least, and I think there is some some truth in this that their products are designed to be long lasting and sustainable, um, and sustainability coming more from um, using less electricity, um, being cheaper to produce over time, like innovating and obviously the, the original version of something being quite expensive, but then you can get incredible technology through scale at a cheaper price. Um, but yeah, I think this, the, the, the sustainability bit definitely is a, a little controversial. Um, but yeah, usually around energy and making these things long lasting is where the company has tried to position itself, but that's not always worked out. I think that's one that maybe we should dig into a little more a bit bit later. Um, final one for me that's, that's fascinating is this sort of market creation. Dyson has been known not just to sort of enter a market, but to create these entirely new categories of products. Um, you know, the Airblade, for example, completely redefined like restroom equipment, right? Um no one was kind of taking that approach um, to cleaning <laughs> water off your hands, much as, you know, it annoys the likes of uh, Franz and, and I. Um, it demonstrates the potential of designers not starting with the the how things are done and trying to improve it, but starting from scratch going like, what's a, what's a better way? 
Um, and they have this very sort of holistic approach. It's not just about the creation of the product. It's the protection of the products, the marketing and the eventual market placement, which all kind of comes together in a really fascinating way. So, yeah, there's this sort of combination of design, engineering, commercial strategy that's enabled Dyson to not just launch products, but like create these categories, which I think is, again, really interesting and, and inspiring. So, um, yeah, I was going to kind of wrap up with asking you both if you remember the first time you used an Airblade, but we've all already kind of <laughs> gone into that. But the, the thing that I think is interesting about the Airblade is you still watch people use it. Maybe maybe Franz is doing this. Um, and they sort of put their hands into it and they put them in and out really quickly, like they might under a traditional dryer where it's using heat to try and evaporate um the water but what the air blade's doing and i have to say i didn't really appreciate this is it's acting like a squeegee so the 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 air is like pulling the water off of your hands and so you need to go really slowly to allow it to have that effect um i did not appreciate that i have to be have to be honest yeah it doesn't change my mind yeah, I still don't appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I hear you what you're saying, but still, no. still not a fan. So yeah, fair enough. Keeps being a no for me. <laughs> no, but like I mean, this is a business podcast in a way as well. So I think one of the reasons this innovation really took off, so Dyson Airblade, is also um, from the perspective of a restaurant owner or a, I don't know, shopping mall owner of just the place where the Dyson Airblades are being used in the public toilet, you, do, you don't need to like carry and think a lot about like these paper towels, which need to be refilled. You need to have someone go there every hour or every, I don't know, half a day and just check is paper towels still there because it's, it's air, you know, like it's much more constant in that way so you don't have to actually check there so i understand why to cough from the perspective of the uh, buyers which in this case are the owners of these um of these places at the same time you gotta say that there was air dryers already before they were just like it felt like you would like mm. I don't know. They were so bad. But those feel even worse to me. Like those, those even look filthy. And then Dyson, I never really looked filthy to me. Just like it just felt filthy. They're, and they're, they're really noisy. The alternative ones, like the older ones. I we've oh, got yeah. one in in the office. I am uh, now in the in the gents. It's got one of these alternatives, old alternatives to an airblade. And it sets off the um, noise meter on my watch every time. It says, you know, you're in an area of extreme noise, 95 decibels. Don't don't get exposed to this, to this for very long. Like, it's crazy. And I know that that's one of the things that Dyson's got really good at is trying to reduce energy mm -hmm. use, size of the motor, and, and, and noise. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And we'll be talking about uh, cancelling noise um, very soon. But now I think it's time to um, talk about the company history a little bit. Now I think we have already talked about now uh, the origin of the actual um, of the actual Hoover of the actual vacuum cleaner, right? This is where Tom stopped with saying, "Yeah, we now are at the point that Dyson has his working product. It is ready to be produced, uh, mass produced, but." James Dyson doesn't have a company, right? He's looking for a way to make money now. He didn't start with 
making a company he started with making a product that works and the next step for him was obviously finding a viable business model and the first thing he actually does is trying to sell this product to vacuum cleaner companies like he wants to license it uh, to companies that currently produce and sell vacuum cleaners um, and that was actually the plan all along he actually raised money from fry and through a bank loan and the plan was all along um, to not sell this company, uh, to not create the company and sell and produce this uh, themselves, but actually uh, licensing it to um, vacuum, um, other vacuum cleaner companies. And licensing, yeah, just means that one party has the intellectual property, which would be Dyson, uh, like the patents, um, or could also be a brand and other examples, and the other party pays to use this intellectual property and um, produce it and sell it. Um, so he pitched to big vacuum cleaning companies like Hoover and the like, and all of them declined. And you already brought up the reason why they declined, because they had a working business model and their working business model was selling bags. They weren't interested in a better technology because they were making money from selling vacuums and then getting people hooked on their bags and basically operating this razor and bla blade business model where you get somebody hooked and then make money off um, constant repurchases. Like if you had a laser uh, printer currently, you also have to basically buy a printer and then buy the refilling toners, for example. So yeah, they were just not interested in it. And that just reminds us of uh, other companies who had the similar uh, experience like Kodak, right? Uh, Kodak <laughs> inventing digital... Uh, photography but then not introducing it because somebody in the company said well but we are earning our money with uh, selling film mm -hmm. so how are we going to earn money after we um, after we don't have this anymore and that's a pretty similar story right this is uh, what's also called innovators um, dilemma right you're basically baked into a system that works quite well uh, so you cannot move out of this and that was happened also to um, to other vacuum companies because what we also know now is that Dyson is market leader in a bunch of markets for vacuum cleaners, right? Yeah, the, the, the Kodak was the one that instantly came to mind when he was going out and pitching. Uh, and he also pitched the the Ball Barrow, such an unfortunate name, uh, people <laughs> um, as well, right? And they they said, if this could be done, one of the big boys would have done it, right? Yeah, Miele yeah. or Hoover or Electrolux, they would have done it already, James, you madman. <laughs> um, they said it couldn't be done. So. Yeah, that was the funny story that actually he wanted to use the um, ball bearer company to produce the vacuum cleaner, right? And then they kicked him out of his own company. Actually, he founded the ball bearer company, then kind of gave up some... Um, uh, ownership in that because he needed to raise money he didn't have the company ownership anymore he wanted to bring the other executives to actually build the vacuum cleaner and they just thought he was crazy uh, and kicked him out of his own company little did they know <laughs> yeah little did they know so okay so he tried to convince first the other executives in his own uh in his in the company that he founded then he actually made it anyway uh, and he pitched it to vacuum cleaner companies and still got um still got um, rejected, right? So you would think, well, that's kind of the end of the story, right? But yeah, 
finding a working business model is like also taking time as much as it takes time to produce a working or to invent a working vacuum cleaner. So the second step that he tried is um, really going on a broader um, quest of finding companies to license um, the, the product. And finally, a Japanese company decided to do that. So he actually convinced a Japanese company uh, to produce and sell his first vacuum. And it sold for about $2,000 uh, at the time. That was quite a lot because it was in the 90, like early 1990s, a vacuum cleaner for $2,000. Um, and yeah, it went okay. The company did earn money, but Dyson was just like not satisfied with that because like he's, yeah, I heard him say in a, in a podcast that he didn't want to sell few of these vacuum cleaners for a lot of money, but he wanted to sell many of these vacuum cleaners for a reasonable price. And this then led him to his next step, which was actually starting his own company, which is now that like what is now Dyson. So he decided to raise money that he could produce and sell the product himself. So he wanted not, he didn't want to do this. He tried to license it to a bunch of different companies, but in the end, didn't really work out the way he wanted it. And he decided to really go into production himself because he still felt like this was a good product, a good idea. And he was not discouraged by the, let's say, non-success of um, other companies not willing to buy and license it. But he was actually even more convinced that um, there is now an opportunity for him. He said he found the rejections massively motivating, (laughs) weirdly, um, just kept him, kept him going. It's like these suckers, like I'm, I'm going to make it. It's going to work. Um, yeah. And this is like, you already said it was um, like you had some moments in this research where you started to question uh, some of your decisions and what you're doing. This is where I questioned how risk-taking a person can be. Like imagine the failures that this person had over years, right? So you got kicked out of your own company that you founded. Then you worked five years on a prototype. You had something that worked really well, wanted to sell it to other companies that produce vacuums. All of them said no. You kind of managed to license it to a Japanese company. Goes okay, but doesn't go really well. And this is like a time period of seven, eight years. And you're still on it. And you know what he did? He took out the loan. 600,000 pounds loan from Lloyd Bank and he signed over his whole house after seven years on this project. And this is where, when I questioned myself in terms of how, like how risk-taking do you actually have to be in order to be an entrepreneur? Because I don't know if I could ever do this, like work seven years on something that doesn't take off. And after seven years of not being super successful, just making a living, um, yeah, signing over my house uh, to the bank and taking That's out it. 600 pounds. He had three kids at this stage signing over yeah, the family exactly. home as security. Like, yeah, um, not not sure <laughs> uh, I would I would be able to do that. But there are so many stories where this go, this exact move goes wrong. So I just think this is more of an exception than a rule that this actually works. I really, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think so, but I also uh, think it is. It seems necessary for bringing a lot of companies off the ground, especially when we're talking about hardware. 
Uh, but yeah, let's talk about hardware later and how this company got successful because now we're at the stage that he secured 600,000 pounds and he used this money to build the first vacuum cleaner under the Dyson name. So he kind of bought tooling for the plastic injection molding, making the components. He put this tooling into a plastic company and this plastic company made the uh, plastic parts for him. And then he used the other half of the factory that was unused to assemble these vacuums. So literally in another person's company, they produced these first few vacuums and then he still had to sell them, right? So now the first distribution channel that he was actually able to land was catalog sales. So at the time, there were only two major channels to sell household products. First was department stores. The second one was mail order catalogs. And the first mm, channel that he actually secured to sell was um, mail order catalogs. And the first like five to uh, 45 months of sales was done purely through catalogs. Um, and only after that, uh, he was able to, um, yeah, land the first department store and um, sell in department stores. And, and that was the moment where it took off, right? The that, department stores. I mean, that was the moment it took off. Actually, the moment it took off is when he was able to afford the first um, uh, TV advertising. That's uh, how TV, the story, yeah, yeah. That's how the story gets uh, is told. But wasn't by wasn't him. it that department store demanded that he runs a uh, TV ad in order for them to sell the Dyson? Yeah, I think that's but, exactly the deal that it was. He was like, yeah, we will only list it if you have TV ads. He says, well, I am profitable, but I don't have the money for TV ads. So if you buy 10,000 vacuum cleaners off me, I'll put the profit into TV advertising. He put every penny of the profit into TV advertising. Um, and it was, it was John Lewis, like really famous brand in the UK, to my department store. So it's like, this could be a game changer. Um, so yeah every penny of profit from that that order uh, yeah. into TV. And well, that was actually um, the point in time, as you said, Alan, where it took off and we can now fast forward a little bit because by 1995, Dyson was the number one vacuum sold in the UK. So now just imagine 1991, 1992 product gets to market only in Japan. Three years later, Dyson number one vacuum sold in the UK, 100 million revenues. Um, then company kept focusing on vacuum cleaners, kept improving the product, um, started to enter new geographic locations. Only in 2002 entered the US. Now we're talking about um, almost 10 years of improving vacuum cleaners um, until they go into the US and then again becoming market leaders by uh, mark uh, by sales volume in 2005. So again, it took them three years of to take over the uh, vacuum cleaner market in the US. And I know that there are a lot of like we initially started into this um, into this podcast saying, well, not really a fan of vacuum cleaners, not really a fan of air blades, not really a fan of this, not really a fan of that. But this is quite like impressive, right? It took them. Five years to take over market in the UK, took them three years to take over the market in the US. And in between, uh, like rigorous focus on improving what they already have, which is 
a vacuum because they didn't start diversifying until the like early 2000s. And, and for products that, that he was constantly being told didn't have a market, people wouldn't go bagless. Um, it, it just just wild that it had like really top and to the right growth, like hockey stick almost um, in the UK. To yeah, it's, it's just just crazy, and it's one of the reasons why I think where he holds this belief, for better or worse. Um, that he's not a fan of market research and he trusts his gut because every signal coming back to him throughout that period of innovation was you're barking up the wrong tree, but mm -hmm. pretty, pretty good tree to be barking up as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many uh, units Dyson is selling these days in the UK? So I have a data point for 2021. So there is uh, 67 million people in the UK. Uh, there is roughly 28 million households. So you know what you know what percentage of households actually bought a Dyson vacuum cleaner? So not any product, but a Dyson vacuum cleaner in 2021? 42 percent. No. In really? one year, 2021. In one 12 year. Million. Yeah, in one year, 2021, 12 million units sold in the UK alone. That was the, I guess... Yeah, that's that. That is blown my mind. I did not see that. And given the price point, I'm absolutely flabbergasted. Um, I know that they had a massive spike around COVID, where people were saving money on going on holidays and stuff, and your home became more precious. And obviously, the cleanliness thing became more of an issue. Um, I don't know if they carried on with those sales. That that has blown my mind, Alan. <laughs> that's nuts. Right, like almost half of the households bought a Dyson product, in, I mean, vacuum cleaner, in 2021. I couldn't believe it. That's that's crazy. That's I mean, really they do cool. offer like part payment, like credit system, which I think for a lot of people probably, I'd love to know how many of those purchases are uh, all like uh, bought cash, or, you know, mm. bought outright versus uh, a plan. Because I think for a lot of people, they are, they're an expensive option. But yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they do hold like a 50% market share in the UK which is also their biggest market share in any country. Then, yeah. by the way, US, it's 25%. So a quarter of the market share. But still a leader, right? Yeah, leader in US, leader in UK. Not so sure about Asia. The market share there is between 20 and 40%. Um, but just to put this in perspective, so 20% is, is is good. You know, that doesn't mean bad. 50% yeah. is crazy. That's really happens. 50% is, is wild. Yeah, just, just to give an example. So iPhone... Uh, has a 20% worldwide market share, uh, even a little bit less than that, I think 17%. So 20 is, it's impressive, super impressive. That's true. Alrighty, this is vacuum chapter. Now we're getting into the next chapter, which is diversification. Uh, because in the early 2000s, Dyson started to enter a whole lot of other markets. And the first step was in the year 2000, and I was completely surprised by that, washing machines. Did you know that? I mean, I think you knew that, right, um, uh, Tom, but Alan? I didn't, no. And I saw the picture, I was like, that's a Dyson washing machine. The colors, the look of it. And I was like, I, before I even read the whole thing to the end, I was like, oh, where can I buy it? It looks, it looks great. But I'm, I guess you're going to tell the story. What why it's not like was this was this a thing back it in was, the days yeah and you know what it hadn't um 
I hadn't really thought about it until researching this. You're going to tell us how, how this one ended, which uh, I might be hinting at, but not really been around uh, so much since it launched. But yeah, it was a pretty big launch at the time. And it had, because it was quite innovative, right, friends? Yeah, I mean, it had innovative, I don't know in this case. I mean, if you look at it, if you think about it, yes, it is different again. It had two drums rotating in opposite direction. So it was supposed to do cleaner cleaning, th more thorough washing. Um, and also shorter time spans. That was one of the really critical things was because ah, of the agitation, um, it could clean much, much faster, um, particularly like delicate things. So stuff like cashmere, apparently, the reason that it shrinks in a wash is because of the amount of time it's immersed in water, whereas the Dyson could do a very quick cold wash through the fact it had these two drums moving opposite directions in a big drum. It could agitate a lot more than a normal washing machine. So... You could wash delicates, you could wash at half the time at lower temperatures because of that technology. So the sustainability angle was definitely in play there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems very basic like as an innovation, but it, but it was. I mean, sounds good, but still discontinued in 2005 uh, because apparently too expensive to make uh, and also apparently too little upside for users to invest this much more money than it actually cost. Um, so yeah, that was the start in 2000. First um, diversification move was the washing machine. Uh, then 2006, our all beloved air blade hand dryer, um, which for me, thinking about it, is a super interesting step because you remember the biggest challenge for Dyson was finding a um, channel to sell it. And we also talked about the like um, sales channel and finding actually the right channel um, for distribution for the products that you have um, as being the biggest challenge. And we talked about this in, in, in earlier episodes. Um, Airblade is a B2B product. So what they have nailed, what they had nailed in the last like 10, 15 years was selling to consumers. In the meantime, they also already started the direct-to-consumer sales. They were they had uh, owned brand stores. One of the first ones to sell online. Um, one of the first ones to have um, refurbed products. Uh, one of the first ones to have um, financing directly on their website. And what you do, you throw this out of the window and go into a B two B market. I mean, this is a crazy move uh, that your next product after vacuum cleaners and washing machines is something that is sold completely different than what you have in your current company. So that was an interesting step for me and was not logical. Um, but I'll talk about the logic behind all of this divers diversification later. Um, yeah, so yeah, B2B product, um, Airblade in 2006, then 2009, bladeless fans and air purifiers. Again, a B2C product. Um, what else? What next? Hair care products, hair dryers without the blade, curling irons without an iron. <laughs> so all of this like Dyson ways of doing stuff. 2018 lightning, um, <laughs> a task light that adjusts its color and temperature. Uh, so color temperature and brightness based on the current daylight conditions, pretty much as the screen on your uh, MacBook that would also adjust to um the current um yeah environment you're in 
that one has a really cool design. I really love to look at that lamp. I really wanted it. At that time, it costed like, I think, $1,200 or euros. Now it's much cheaper. I think it's not going that well. That's like the sales of the lamp. Uh, maybe just they're discontinuing it or, or whatever, but I saw it for 600 bucks uh, just today. But it's a really, I mean, it, it's one of those uh, innovations where it's a really Dyson type of innovation. They take a product category that that kind of feels sleepy. All the companies in that space have fallen asleep. Like they're basically producing the same thing over and over again, like hair dryers, table lamps, vacuum cleaners. It's not like high tech that people are super excited about to get the highest and the best product. But Dyson is just like, no, this can be done better. And the type of table lamp for me is like, yeah, it's it's a really great example of how what the way they're thinking, the way the company is thinking. Um, but with table lamp, it's the one where I don't see that much connection to their technology with other products. Like, because when we talk about Dyson Airblade, um, the, the hair products, the vacuum cleaner, it's, it's always somehow connected to air technology, to manipulating air. And this one felt a little bit step into a different direction, which is probably where you had it now with your diversification level two, right? I mean, in a way it is. So um, yeah, let's talk about this right away uh, as we are already on it. That's what I thought in the very beginning that washing machine wasn't um, successful because it wasn't air. Uh, and also uh, this light was weird because it wasn't um, air. So I thought, okay, their common denom denominator was air. Um, mm. But then I listened to an interview with um, James Dice uh, with... Um, yeah, the Dyson and his son, Jake. I think Jake. Jake, yeah. yeah. It's Jake, yeah, yeah. Jake Dyson. And there I understood that their approach to entering new markets is purely riding uh, technology transfer. So th really focusing on perfecting um, one technology and then trying to think of where else could you um, could use this and yes air is definitely one of them how do you actually control the flow of air but when you think of this further it's also electric motors something that turns very fast batteries um, so that's batteries now that's now why the washing machine actually makes sense because cyclone is actually an electric motor that um, that accelerates air so one of the core technology competences is um, electric motors of of dyson and i think light makes sense because they spent 15 or i think even 20 years on uh creating the robot vacuum cleaner robot mm. this vacuum cleaner robot took so long because they bet on sensor technology they were like no we don't want to have a robot that just hits things and then just turns around no we need a sensor this sensor needs to see the room this sensor needs to make the robot stop before it hits something so here i think it's sensor technology and then they use sensor technology to go into lightning that's mm -hmm. not what i read but i think that's the whole um idea behind technology transfer like you have something you're obsessed about innovation you're obsessed about making something that other people just make good enough for the product actually you overdo it maybe you don't need all this technology in a simple vacuum cleaner but you do it and then you think of um, ways to apply this technology to um, other areas and i think this is one of the core 
strategies that Dyson uses when they think of entering new um, entering new um, areas. So either they think they can learn something there that's useful for a lot of other areas, or they have something that they already are perfect in, and then they try to transfer it to other uh, to other areas. So yeah, I think that makes sense, um, and I think this is all. Um, basically all these steps follow uh the whole follow the this logic until we got something with the, where they basically maybe overshoot their ambitions which was the electric car so 2019 oh, okay. they wanted to go into electric car um uh yeah took them 5 years took them like 500 million basically uh to do it um and then they canceled the product Again, I think it's a super brave decision. So imagine you invest all of this money just to say, well, we have an almost ready prototype. It was almost ready because they showed the prototype half a year after they announced that they would not launch the product. So you're almost done with your prototype, um, but still you discontinue it. And in interviews, obviously you need to justify your decision, but uh, they already said, well, we are doing technology transfer. This is the core of our company. So we have already earned these 500 million elsewhere. And did they explain what went wrong? Why did they abandon this project? I only heard uh, financial viability. This such mm -hmm. a product is not financially viable. They couldn't afford to, most electric car manufacturers making a loss on every model that goes out. Um, and they, you know, some of the, I think VW, it was, you know, running into the tens of billions um, as far as R&D and loss making. And they can afford to do that because under EU legislation, um, after Dieselgate, your whole model line, the emissions uh, as, a, as an organization were calculated across everything you sell. So if they were selling an electric car at a loss, it was pulling down their emissions levels so you can go and sell an SUV that... Um, is a gas guzzler, but people still desire and sort of offset um, the carbon uh, between the two. But also everyone knows that's where the puck's moving. So, then, you know, there, there's a lot more resource available in these these organisations. So you just knew we, we, we cannot compete financially. I'm not willing to um, risk the future of the business uh, on this venture. Which is a shame because I think it would have been a really interesting product. I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised they went with the electric car and especially it's such a big, it was sort of SUV style car. Did you see I the wish... prototype? Yeah, yeah. Do you um, like it? It reminds me a little bit of the VW ID3 um, shape-wise um, and it had some interesting features. I wish they'd gone down the uh, individual transport line you know scooters e-bikes um like small small city transport maybe they will one day but um yeah they, if, if 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 people are really interested they, he does kind of explore some of the motivations from a design perspective um that were was was super interesting um yeah. and maybe some of the technology that they um came up with for the car you know might end up getting licensed yeah. somewhere else who knows you know what the first thought was when i saw this car this is too sleek. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look like a Dyson car, right? right? Where is the purple? Where is the yeah. orange color? Yeah. Like, it's too smooth. This is like, this looks like the Apple car. 
Not from like a designer aesthetic, <laughs> you'd expect them to sort of look a bit more like a smart car. I think a smart car is more like Dyson exactly. than the Dyson. I think that's part of the issue maybe with the lamp, the lamp design is it's one of those examples where they've moved away from the design language that makes design quite interest, Dyson and interesting. And that's why Alan likes it too much because maybe. it's sleek. Yeah, the lamp is different Apple. from, yeah, the lamp completely. So I think these two products, car and lamp, if you look at them, they're not Dyson language brand language design language but then i have the next one most recent diversification action oh. <laughs> noise cancelling headphones noise cancelling headphones combined with ear purification filter this one so, yeah i saw a quote that someone said he was reviewing it saying is it i need this to check it wasn't april the first april fool's day because this product is wild um yeah I it's saw just... like a picture of it and I was then looking for it on the website and I didn't see it on a website. And that's because, so everybody, when they talk about it, they talk about this ear purification stuff, right? It's like a mask. It looks like a robot mask. If I would, if I would have to describe it, it looks like a robot mask. That is not super villain robot mask. That is more like a clown robot mask because it has like a purple ball in the <laughs> in the front so weird okay so i tried to look at it uh, and look for it on the website but there is no it is not under uh, air purifying it is actually under um noise cancellation because it's actually not sold as this what everybody um rants about the core of this whole product is a noise cancellation headphone and here i gotta say it makes so much sense again, right? They found a way, I had a look at this, they found a way again to use the technology that they have in a product and make this product appear. So apparently this noise cancellation functionality is just so much better than everything that ever existed. But then what they did is um, putting an adapter on the noise cancellation headphones so you can add this mask and click it on the headphones and these headphones would actually produce this um airflow and this would then be filtered with the thing that you have in front of your mouth i don't know <laughs> it's a no from me yeah it looks weird and i don't know maybe they were targeting the asian market with it mm. um with big cities with more pollution and so on but still, I can't imagine anyone wearing it with a straight face on like a metro. Uh, it just looks so odd, so odd. As yeah. always with Dyson, they might, you know, number one, if you'd taken that to a board of investors, um, they would have told, laughed you off and gone, no way. This definitely feels like a, a James Dyson thing, right? Got the money to invest, I want to do this, fine. May well be years ahead as well. Because, mm. yeah, with pollution being what it is, I think the Asian market is definitely where they saw this being um, targeted more. That, that, yeah, perhaps there is a market for it. I think that I have issues with the headphones. Um, I think that I can't imagine walking around with headphones with Dyson printed on the side, which is what they look like. I think if they didn't have Dyson on, it's just like that's a Hoover manufacturer, which I, I, which I love, right? I love Dyson as a company, but. I don't know, like, it, it just doesn't feel right. I can imagine people being a little little embarrassed, but that's that's all from me, like, I might be projecting yeah. there. The other interesting thing is 
when I looked at the demo videos and they're like the website for the the um, air purifier, every video of it um, is someone walking out of a subway station and immediately taking it off. So you don't even see it on face at all for very long. It's basically someone just taking it off straight away. I think mm. they realise how ridiculous it looks and... I guess trying to show that the, the the where it would be most useful is in those scenarios, but it really I think is quite telling is that that the majority of the promo video is people just getting it off their face, so you can't really see it, yeah. see them walking around with it on. Um, but yeah, but what it, a, what a fascinating diversification. Yeah, even the product is called noise cancellation. So if that's what I so when you go on the website, there is no like the tagline or the the button that you click on says noise cancellation. And it doesn't say, I don't know, air filter or something like this. I'd love to know how many of those they're selling. Not many, I think. Well, um, from a business perspective, yeah. I think it's still an interesting idea because uh, uh, still an interesting move because of exactly what you said, um, Tom. This is their first product that is a wearable out of home. So as weird as it was to actually move from B2C to B2B, with um with the airblade as big of a move is also this going from being a company that is used in your household to being a company that is used outside and here i don't know if the brand works as well as you said right so it's this is definitely a, a branding thing um where you don't have as much problem going from b2c to b2b but you might have problems from going from in-house use for chores to something music-related. Now it is a headphone, so it's actually, yeah, music industry. There is more, I don't know, it feels just different to doing chores. Yeah, it's not just what we talked before, which is Dyson's image and brand reputation is built on this is superior technology. It and works utility. better. Yeah, but when you go into wearables, it becomes much more of a status game, like projecting who I am. Mm. Um, style. And yes, yeah, style as well. Yeah. And there, that's where exactly the brand doesn't work as well as currently positioned, unless they try to also somehow have two different flavors of the brand. I mean, the, the communication of the headphones is still superior um superior audio quality superior noise cancelling quality right that it's still a dyson way to communicate stuff uh but yeah you can't really cut out that it needs to have style also so mm -hmm. even the bose and sennheiser that are more utility focused have uh like are sleek so i think yeah let's see what happens with them this whole area, um, the headphones, wearables, it 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 does feel like an opportunity for a spin-out brand, maybe, um, rather than just leaning on Dyson, you know, something by Dyson. I don't know, because I, I just cannot get over the fact of walking around with some... I, I don't think the nicest looking headphones in the world that also have Dyson plastered yeah. on. Yeah, maybe they could be Heisen headphones <laughs> by Dyson. Yeah, let's see if this is going to be um, the vacuum cleaner or the washing machine. We uh, are still ought to yeah. find out uh, about this product. 
but there is more to the diversification, actually. Uh, apart from products, actually, Dyson has also diversified into completely different areas, namely university and farms. Yeah, farms were was fascinating to me. Yeah, super fascinating. I mean, that's the part I love the most, probably. Yeah, it's so weird, right? So first one, Dyson Institute of Engineering and Technology, opened in 2017, offers undergraduate and graduate engineering degrees. First, it wasn't really a university itself, right? It was um, a partnership with the University of Warwick, but now it has, like, it is a proper university. They can award degrees. And students, they don't only study there, they also work um, as engineers already uh, or with design, uh, with engineers from Dyson already, they don't pay for tuition, but rather they're they get, like, paid. They get paid a salary for studying there. Yeah, it's crazy. So yeah. this is like a big thing. And Dyson Farm as incredible, like established 2010 already. Uh, and now one of the largest farming operations in the UK. When I read this, I was like, what? They've been buying up land all around kind of where they're based in uh, in England to, to try and get this farming technology stuff going. I'm, I'm with Alan. For me, this is the most exciting bit. This feels like it could be the pinnacle of where James Dyson really wanted to get to. And this for me is a lesson in... You know, on the surface, you look at a company like Dyson and... Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say they've put a lot of like plastic crap out into the world and maybe over-engineer things sometimes. But if that technology can end up being put to the uses that they are now exploring, um, it, that 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 is good, like and it could be potentially groundbreaking breaking for like regenerative farming and stuff like that. Yeah, and just to be specific, so what are they doing? So like they use drones. I saw um, self-driving tractors in a way for precision uh, farming. Um, there was uh, probably the biggest, how do you call this, like greenhouse? Um, glass houses? Uh, yeah, glass house. So it's oh, the biggest glass house for making strawberries. Yeah. And I think it's uh, carbon emissions uh, like neutral because they have a nearby uh, like a green source of energy. I mean, when you look at those things, it's like, wow, okay, if you can use technology to not only make farming more green in a way, but also, I mean, the, the claim is it's going to make it more profitable, which is one of the biggest problems with farming right now. You need huge subsidies from governments to for, for, for farmers to even make sense to continue um, producing food, which is what we all need, essentially, right? So if they can change the game here, this is, yeah, huge, much yeah bigger than vacuum cleaners. Yeah. And it has such a huge vision. Like it's about growing food. It's about researching innovative and sustainable techniques, uh, producing renewable energy. Um, and it's also kind of a, I think they also baked in an educational purpose here with opportunity to uh, go there, learn stuff, even spend your holiday holidays on these properties. So I was just blown away by the scale of this. Like, this is not a hobby. This is like a full-blown, huge operations. I can't see how this also gets can get backlashes from like, I don't know, farming community maybe, like overpowering um, small structured farms. But I don't know. It's like, it's inspiring. And I 
I really like I even want to follow this even beyond this podcast because I'm so interested in this. Also, like business-wise, it is one of the biggest markets out there. It's like 13 trillions at the moment, 14 trillions USD. Um, so it also, if you think about it, as we said before, not just engineering and design perspective, but it is one of the biggest markets, which is completely underutilized with the new technology, uh, at least not like at super advanced technology. Um, there is huge opportunity in this space, for sure. And he's yeah. one of the people in one of these businesses that is willing to plow extortionate, extraordinary amounts of money into something just because he believes in it. Um, yeah. And again, it's one of those things that maybe wouldn't happen if it wasn't a public, uh, private, yeah. sorry, private company. I, I got some numbers so on their R&D, if I may quickly just jump in. So, um, you know what R&D budget of Apple is? So as percentage of the revenue? It's don't know. Okay, you want to go I'd for like a guess? To, let's have a guessing game. Uh, percentage of re revenue? Did you say? Yeah, yeah. So Apple has roughly four hundred billion revenue. Fifteen. Fifteen. Okay, it's a good guess. Front. I would have said seven. Seven percent. Okay, so the company or an industry that has the highest percentage of revenue is pharmaceutical. So, for example, AstraZeneca has twenty five percent. 25% of their revenue goes into R&D. Uh, Apple is only 7%. I mean, it's still a good number, but it's 7%. Yeah, so France. I'm usually super bad uh, at guessing, but this time, yeah. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> um, Dyson, 15 to 20%. Okay. So they're behaving almost like a pharmaceutical company and super, super, yeah. It's not most common in this space, especially as a private company. Yeah. And the guy's got a lot of money. Like you've seen how much those Hoovers sell for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's apparently the fifth richest, uh, Britain's fifth fifth richest man. He yeah. is indeed. And just just to uh, promise not to touch on politics too much. But one thing I did. One, one thing well, I, I did. To. One thing. I, <laughs> uh, one thing I did learn is that um, of the Times Rich list, there's like you know. Uh, 40 people or something in the UK rich list. Um, I think of the top 10 in the rich list, I think there was only one or two of people in that top 10 that are also in the top tax paying list. And James Dyson is one of them. Like he, he pays his taxes. <laughs> so I'm like, that, that's pretty rare uh, for, for billionaires to, to pay their fair share. So, you know. Um, it's interesting you bring this up because... Why did the company then move to Singapore recently? Well, they did, yes. Like, like I say, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, we can. But um, he's probably still saying. avoiding some 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 of the tax, maybe. But um, you know, uh, as as a, a blunt measure, um, he has had some uh, a yeah a modicum of praise for actually um, not avoiding all of his tax. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe avoiding just some of it. Oh, so, of so this low. is where I wish I hadn't gone there. <laughs> Let's go back to what you said earlier, because I completely agree that this is hardly possible for a company that is not privately owned, right? So all of the prior things made sense from technology transfer perspective. The last one, the air purifier mask, we already said, well... Maybe a very brave company could have done this, but it's already very James Dyson. But then university and farming, 
No way. I mean, sure, Dyson Institute of Engineering Technology kind of solves a business problem for them because they educate their own engineers, but you can do that with much lower investment, right? You don't need to have your own university to do that. You can have, uh, I don't know, good internship program. You can have working student programs, which many of the big companies have. But in farming, well, that just like, that is James Dyson's interest, hobby. And he just turns that into a business because he thinks that makes sense. Um, and that's actually also something that they state a lot when they talk about their identity as a business. Um, and this also kind of gives us a nice segue into like strategic decisions and all of that. Like it sounds like being like the ownership structure is not a strategic decision because a company is a company, but actually it's, it is a very big strategic decision. Like staying a privately owned company was something that James Dyson learned the hard way because he was kicked out of the company that he uh, founded, this wheelbarrow, a uh, ball bearer company. Can't even say the name straight. But yeah, ball bearer company, he founded. He gave up shares. He ended up not being majority uh, shareholder. And then he got kicked out of his own company. Um, so when he actually founded uh, the Dyson company, we still remember that he took on Fry as an investor with 49%. But even before he started the actual company that would produce the vacuum cleaners, he bought out Fry. So with the very first money he earned, he bought out his initial investor. That was actually with the licensing money. So he used the very first money, the licensing money to gain 100% ownership of his company and he never ever wanted to give up shares ever again after that. Apparently so, Jeremy Fry was quite quite willing to be bought out because um, he was like, James, this is dragging on a little now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, apparently they had a very, very good relationship and that was a very amicable parting, remained friends, all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't like a, um aggressive buyout or anything like that. I think no, they had a very... So very fruitful relationship um he wanted to help his student i think jeremy fry was a real mentor to him but um yeah those shares would have been worth <laughs> a few quid yeah. yeah no the the story i heard was uh that jeremy fry got advised by his financial advisors to sell the dyson shares because yeah it there's uh, better ways to invest this money elsewhere because it's just uh, not growing. It's taking too long to be fruitful. And so they were just trying to get cash and to invest it into something else. Um, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Never take <laughs> advice. <laughs> probably, probably those people got fired. Um, yeah, but this is what actually um, they focus a lot on in their public communication. Like, we already talked about how the Dyson, like James Dyson or generally the Dyson family is so centered in this communication and in this company. And whenever he talks about company identity, he says, well, the only reason why we can do what we are doing is because we are private, because this is owned by the family, because we are the only ones who take decisions. And this is the only reason why we can do university. And this is the only reason why we can do farms and have these awesomely uh, awesome architecture in our uh, whenever you build something so yeah we can do we can think in the long term we cannot we are free to not only think about cost and um and um 
returns, even though obviously it is necessary because otherwise you don't have a business, but still, um, that's what they say. And that's what apparently also gives them the freedom to act the way they act. Um, and this also translates into or can translate in the business into business success if you like build the company on the values that are actually also um valued in the market right uh and here i think there are two big values that are interconnected that the company was built on from early on the first one was this obsession about innovation technology and ultimately utility that to make something just I don't know, just better and different and just also being okay if it looks different as long as it um, as it like has a clear upside for the user. Um, and the other one is like um, the sustainability one, which I think, I mean, I don't know if he, the way he talks about it is that sustainability was something that was baked into his way of designing and engineering stuff even before he called it sustainability so he talks about sustainability as a design principle and as an engineering principle and as something that every engineer should be doing um, in terms of if there is something that is unnecessary and can be eliminated then you should eliminate it like bags or blades or cords or whatever this is or if you can reduce energy then you should reduce energy energy or if you can increase efficiency of something then you should increase it even if it's maybe unnecessary for the the um the use or the actual product right so we also discussed that some of their products even seem over engineered but still there is this um let's say drive of um the engineering team or maybe even deep more deeply of um james dyson to just engineer stuff in the best way you can and part of this is also make it sustainable i think the sustainability one is the one that doesn't always hold water for, for me and i rightly do get heavily criticized i think a lot of the sustainability angle from dyson and james dyson is around energy which yeah. completely massive right um and I, I don't know what the net kind of balance would be between the amount of materials that he's using and the amount of plastic being uh, put out there and the amount of uh, redundant products because they're hard to repair, for example, they're out there versus the the energy um, that is saved through them. So I, maybe the big, big sustainability um, outcome is going to be in that farming kind of yeah. space. Maybe that's where <laughs> the balance is actually going to get massively shifted the other way because yeah quite rightly they're they're yeah. criticized particularly around the repairability you know it's a that's interesting because it seems like they did uh, address this with running their own refurbed store did they you see do that? yeah there's a refurb store I don't, but you do see a lot of i mean anecdotally but also online there's a lot of complaints about how quickly these things run out of battery power and mm. obviously battery wastage is an issue um that they're difficult to repair and a lot of people can't be bothered to send them back to be refurbished or repaired or take them to a repair shop they buy a new one um yeah. and very often it's replacing a motor because these motors are really intricate and hard to kind of repair um so yeah obviously it seems like the methods are there but the the process Practice. and the um 
drive to to go down that road maybe is not quite there yet um so yeah i think some work to do um certainly talk a lot about sustainability but um doesn't necessarily always get backed up i think yeah i'd be interested in getting somebody who actually works i mean yeah that's always going to be one way of thinking about uh of of explaining it but yeah um when i had a look at it uh it felt like they were doing a lot in terms of um building to last or also refurbishing stuff but yeah if the market says well they break down uh and no they can't be repaired then that's um obviously not an effort that pays off um yeah what else do we have from strategy perspective i think something that we talked about on from the very beginning was something that um still needs to be mentioned again um, which is this decision about going for visibility like if we talked about this already like dyson products they just look different most things they make look completely different from traditional products in the industry like the vacuum without the bag and this weird transparent case when you think about it that's just weird that you see the dirt like usually like why would you do this why would you have a transparent uh container i have a one assumption which is like you see the result of your work yeah by seeing it you're like yes it doesn't look great but you feel uh i did something Yes. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. It works, but it's still completely different, right? Also, dryer, you stick your hands in. Weird. I don't like it, but yeah, still kind of, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you remember it. It's, it's, it's different. A it fan, is. like hair dryer that doesn't have blade. Again, that completely counterintuitive. Um, and part of that is definitely, the way they design products, like cutting out stuff, eliminating unnecessary stuff. But other part is the design language that is just not subtle, that is just not classic, that is loud and edgy and showing pipes and tubes and motors and stuff. Um, and that is on purpose because it follows a strategy that worked with his very first sales. So the story that he tells is how he got his first very first um um vacuum into the catalog is that the catalog owner like mail order order catalog owner said why should i put your vacuum cleaner in there and he said because your catalog is boring and my vacuum cleaner looks weird and exciting and this is how apparently he got into this um into this um catalog and if you think about it this is a strategy that they took and that worked for this product category. They are able to create excitement about something that's inherently boring. Like we're not talking about exciting product per se. We're talking about vacuum cleaners, hand dryers, hair dryers. I don't know. That's just stuff that is, it needs to work, right? But in a way, if you look at Dyson stuff, it looks exciting when you buy it it feels exciting when you um show it to others it will spark interest um and that's exactly the strategy that dyson said they are looking for they want people to stop and look at it because he says this is the only way to make people pause and think about something that they usually don't do it 
people don't usually think about vacuum cleaners. They don't usually think about uh, fans because they just work. They have looked the same for ages. And only if you make it look different and maybe even a little weird, you get people to stop, look, think about it, and then reconsider whether this is now actually a better product or not. And if you would do Apple design, then you would not get people um, stop and think about it. Interesting hypothesis. Yeah. No. Don't agree. Makes with sense. It? For sure. I mean, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, the the last bit with the Apple, I think this is the one I disagree on because, like, Apple is, I think, also followed the same logic. Uh, they built a sleek design in a computer uh, industry where it was very, very functional. So I think they follow basically the same logic, just they did it in a different flavor. Do you remember remember the first Apple designs with the transparent covers? Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, what? yeah, uh, Lisa, right? Yeah. Dyson were two years yeah. ahead of that. Yeah. They, they <laughs> so got actually, accused of copying Johnny Ive, but actually they were, they were first. Yeah, if, you're, if you just compare these early Apple products with, uh, with transparent casing, with Dyson stuff, that's kind of yeah, it's there, pretty yeah. similar, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, I mean, this is now we're talking about uh, emotions and 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 like aesthetical design. But for Dyson, yeah, it has worked. It has worked to um, kind of create excitement through looking different and through um, yeah, creating something that is visible um, and makes people at least stop and think about it. So yeah, that's a little bit about product. I think I only have two more that I already mentioned that are more on a business level from a strategic perspective. Yes, they moved into D2C direct-to-consumer sales very early with flagship stores and great online presence. So not only selling through catalogs and department stores, but really going direct-to-consumer. Um, and then owning the production in-house. I think this is also something that's often overlooked. Uh, for such a company, like, would you actually try to produce everything in-house or would you try to get somebody to produce the, the parts that, I mean, it's a vacuum cleaner, right? So many other companies are building vacuum cleaners, but no, if you build a vacuum cleaner that's so different, you kind of need to also or want to also produce it in-house. That gives you upside over um, control over the value chain, over quality, um, but also increases costs. So all of this, kind of let um, the company to achieve something that is quite rare in a hardware in a hardware uh, business, which is like being a very profitable hardware company. And I'm just curious whether we have some some numbers around this this profitability. I mean, I did only see some revenue numbers and some um, some uh, profit numbers and also the fact that yeah, Dyson is one of the richest men's in uh, men in in the UK, so it's apparently successful, um, which is counterintuitive for a hardware product when we think of other hardware products that have gone, yeah, not so well. Not um, so great, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, despite this company being private, it's so big that they do share some top level numbers. Um, and you're right. I mean, for a hardware company, these results are pretty uh, amazing. So revenue 2022 was $8.1 billion. Uh, dollars. 
and uh, the profitability EBITDA was uh, 1.6 billion, which is 20%. Um, just to put this in compar comparison, we are comparing Dyson a lot with Apple because it just feels like Dyson almost being Apple for household appliances. So Apple has a bit higher profit margin of 28%, but uh, we should maybe compare Dyson with other household appliance manufacturers such as Miele, and Miele has a 4% EBITDA margin. So five times as big. And um, it seems that one of the most important factors that, go into, that goes into being such a high profitable hardware company is um, being a premium in the segment that you're selling. Um, and that's what Apple and Dyson have both done. So they have such a strong brand in their, their respective markets that they can demand a premium uh, for their products. And that basically gives them the financial stability, which means that also Dyson James, Sir James Dyson has enough money to spend on things like uh, electric car, um, noise canceling headphones with air purifier and so on. Because one of the big storylines that they're also trying to communicate outwards is their CAPEX. Uh, so this is capital expenditure. This is investments in manufacturing, investments in R&D, investments in new products. And they have a really, really lofty plan to, it's a five year, 3.4 US dollar plan, billion dollar plan to invest in the research, specifically energy storage. So they're really interested in the solid uh, state batteries. Bought the startup, uh, would, right? They bought a company from the US who does this, uh, but they also are building a lot on their own. Um, so this, then farming, then AI, robotics. Oh, have you seen the robotics? Um, like... There's a video where they show a little bit of what they're working on in terms of the robotics. No, didn't see that. Wow, man, that's uh, that got me really excited. So there was a section of their R&D that just works on robotics. Like it's basically just imagine having a, a home robot robot that doesn't just vacuum but can pick up stuff that can clean that maybe can even cook. So the way that Jake, so Jake Dyson talked about it was, um, yeah, I spend half of my free time just uh, cleaning up the, after the kids. Imagine just how much time I could save if there was a robot that could help with this. And essentially in that video, they showed like a hand picking up stuff and putting like, I don't know, a toy into uh, a tray. Um, yeah, so they didn't want to show a lot in that video, but it just uh, indicated they are working on really big things. So yeah, robotics does take a lot of uh, capex, a lot of investment, and if that's what's in their plan, it's hard to not be bullish about them. But we're gonna get to our part in the end. Um, so let's now also play a little bit of the game of uh, the size of the company. So I'll give you three companies. Uh, one by one, and you tell me if Dyson or that company is larger in terms of the revenue. Uh, so I already told you Dyson's revenue, it's 8 billion. So uh, please re restrain from using Google and cheating, Brunt. <laughs> Why me? Because I made I know you a have good a guess in the first one. Because you, yeah, yeah, and you have a spreadsheet with all the numbers, right? All the previous guesses. Ah, now we're talking about previous companies. No, no, I'm going to use a new one, okay. uh, new ones. So, First off, Dyson versus iRobot. Obviously, iRobot company famous in the vacuum cleaning space, especially for their robots. So does Dyson or iRobot um, have bigger revenue? I think it's Dyson. 
of both of you going with Dyson? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you're correct. iRobot has only 1.2 billion in revenue. Okay, now Dyson versus Miele. Mm. Miele. Yeah, I'm going to go Miele. So many more products. I thought the same, but no. Miele has 5.8 million in revenue. Sorry, billion in revenue. And Dyson obviously really? has six point. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised. And now Dyson versus Philips. Philips, another company, does a lot of transfer technology stuff. They reuse technology on different types of products. They're also in the vacuum cleaning. They're also in the hair um, hair care products. So what do we think here, boys? Dyson versus Philips. Um, I think Philips. I think they do a lot of industrial stuff. Um, yeah, probably a lot in defense as well. But yeah. I'm going to go Philips. Yeah. Now, for the sake of it, I say Dyson. No, I think it's Philips. It is Philips, yeah, 18 billion. And I think this is where Dyson is headed somehow with the next step. Like if they can really pull off robotics, uh, entering this market, entering AI, entering like even uh, the battery market, these are all like huge, huge markets. Like robotics is, robotics is supposed to be 200 billion market by 2030. And comparing this to vacuum cleaning market, does anyone of you can anyone guess how big vacuum cleaning market is globally per year? Wow, and they're doing six billion, is it around six billion? Yeah, fifty percent of a couple of mark. Well, the UK market. I'm going to say forty billion. Forty. Okay, and your friends? Oh. no, probably more actually. So fifty-five. We have eight. I don't know. That that's so hard. Okay, I'll it's I'll I'll tell you. Four hundred. Oof! No, it's ten. It's actually only twelve billion. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that was such and a bad guess. To... <laughs> I I anchored you with two hundred billion from robotics. It's, this is estimated for twenty thirty. So yeah, some uh, interesting numbers, but I couldn't find more because just it's a private company. I mean, yeah, there's I shared some more stuff about the market share, about the R&D investments. Um, so I think we can also go into the last part and just talk about opportunities, threats, and would we be buying, selling, or holding if we were uh, Sir James Dyson in this position? Mm. So opportunities... Well, the farming stuff sounds like, I mean, it seems like an obvious one, but surely like that's, that's enormous. You've already talked about the market size there, Alan. Um, they've been investing in this technology and innovating here for 10, 15 years R&D wise. You'd hope they've got something that they can start putting out there in the next decade. Um, yeah. And then the Far East, I think um, they still haven't tapped in enormously into that market i don't think they've obviously made moves in southeast asia but um we always say that don't we but um we do yeah. but in this case they already have 50 percent of revenue coming from asia so i think it's less oh, right. okay. um strong of an argument that f- than for Birkenstock mm. or Aesop. yeah but yeah 
I don't know, um, not cars. <laughs> the, the cleaning up robot <laughs> sounds right in their wheelhouse, but again, that feels like a long way off. So I don't know short-term-wise, to be honest with you. Um, it feels like there's a lot of threats coming from other manufacturers in the vacuum market. But yeah, Franz, yep. anything top of mind for you? I think a, an opportunity for them is... I don't know how much they are actually going into farming when it comes to creating new technology for the farming market. But for me, it seems that they all want that they need to uh, break out of the household. So I think that's something that they need to do. And it also feels like that they are going towards that with the robot, um, uh, with the robot technology, with the energy scoring as energy. Uh, storing technology with the farming technology so it feels like it's necessary for them to get out of the house and of out of the chores um yeah so, get, get out get a bit get of sunshine Dyson. come on put the yeah. broom down um if they could crack solid state batteries i mean that mm. would be insane huge but that's that's yeah. that's massive and that is still a long way off but that seems to be a, a bet that Dyson are willing to take and again probably one that doesn't make financial sense right now but with this long-term thinking could be massive yeah. right like that transforms um the electric car industry for example one that they uh weren't able to capitalize on an actual car but they could end up being a massive player in the battery tech space so yeah that's the bit I'd be most interested in them cracking honestly I do have a little bit of a worry there it feels like they're working on a new, a lot of new stuff, but it also feels like their latest bets weren't as successful. Yeah. Plus, you have now the transferring company ownership from James to Jake Dyson. So I think it could go either way for this company. It could go, I mean, they are far away from a rework example, right? Um, we made a podcast about them half a year later, they are bankrupt. So that's not going to happen for Dyson for uh, to Dyson for sure. But I'm just saying, will they be as successful as they are? I think it could go two ways. Either the, they are at the end of their, like conquering the household and ingenuity of James Dyson or young or not so young anymore. Jake, uh, Jake Dyson actually does the move uh, into uh, completely different markets and um yeah just create a dyson that looks completely different in in 10 or 20 years to what it looks uh like now but i think staying the same will just get them eat up eaten up by other mm. like by other companies that also do a good vacuum and also do a good hair dryer and also do a good fan and definitely do an as good uh, noise cancelling headphone I think you covered opportunities and threats pretty well. Yeah. So the succession, a big, a big threat. I also think this is one of the companies that has a really such a solid brand that I think it doesn't have very short term threats. Um, so I don't, I think they will stay profitable for, for, for the foreseeable future. And it's more just about can they find the next big thing in the next five to 10 years? Um, because I agree the vacuum cleaners are their cash cow at the moment, but it, can be the only thing if they really want to grow but they have really interesting bets 
uh, farming, AI, robotics, and they do have a very, very interesting culture and history of a transfer, tech transfer. So um, going into our buying, selling, holding, which is not an investment advice because yeah, you can't buy this company's stocks. Um, but if frankly, if there was an IPO, I would be very interested. It is one of the companies that I'm super impressed with, especially because they have this innovation process and culture that just seems to be, yeah, like a flywheel, just generating ideas and they're not afraid of making mistakes. And I, I really appreciate that. Mm. It's something that was lost with uh, with Apple since like Steve Jobs uh, died. Uh, uh, but I feel like it's more ingrained here in the in the culture of the company. Also because... Yeah, his son is probably going to take over. Yeah, it feels like a, a buy for me and it would be head and heart. Usually it's a bit more of one or the other and obviously you should try and use your head um, when making these decisions but can get behind them on so many fronts. Um, so yeah, not that it's going to happen and I hope they stay uh, private because that's yeah. obviously served them well but I would be buying. I would, I don't know though, if I would be a... Venture capitalist or private equity, I would not be buying because I don't feel like they are undermanaged. Like I don't feel there is huge growth. Like they're headed towards huge, huge growth. Huge growth. It more feels like they are headed towards a stable future at the moment. So I would maybe hold. And if I had, if I needed one of these companies in my portfolio, maybe also buy. But wait, friends. So 2014, 1.3. Billion in revenue. Yeah. 2015, 1.7. 2016, 2.5. 2017, 3.5. 2018, 4.4. 2019, 5.4. 2020, 5.7. 2021, 6. 2022, 6.5. This is an impressive growth for any type of company. So um, I think even the private, uh, uh, Sorry, I'm making the name. So even like private investors, institutional investors would be all over this. Mm. Yeah, could be. It just feels like at the other private equity cases that we had uh, were just so under, like underutilized opportunities, like ESOP, like Birkenstock, like all of these, they felt like, yes, LVMH needs yeah, that's true. to buy them it's clear. in a way because it's yeah. like, they're already doing so good and they just tapped into such a tiny fraction of the market. For Dyson, it's like, yeah, they are a good business, but it's not so underutilized. Uh, their potential is not mm. so underutilized. That's what I meant. But I still, I still think they are a very healthy business and also yeah. would have margins for any investor. <laughs> wow. Cool. I think that's... Oh, do you have more, Tom? No, I don't. I was going to say, I think we could do several episodes about Dyson. I think a lot of the stuff that Franz yeah. in particular really did a great job of getting through that stuff, but there's so many stories within stories here. I think maybe one to revisit at some point, but yeah, might be our longest episode, but with good good reason. But yeah, good one too. Yeah, have. two hours. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, I think that's it. Uh, so thanks everyone, especially those who stayed with us until the end. If you have any ideas for other brands we should uh, dissect, reach out to us you can do that at uh, hello at d.mba. Just send us over your ideas. But if you also enjoyed this episode and you stayed until the end, you obviously are interested in the business topics, 
especially maybe business topics relevant for the work of designers. So we do have a special email course. It's called Mini MBA, where over seven days, we send you seven emails, each of them teaching you a business concept relevant for the work of designers. So if that sounds interesting, you can head over to d.mba slash mini MBA. So that's d.mba slash mini MBA. And you can sign up there for free. And that's indeed everything. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Franz. See you in the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.